This show is sponsored by the Back in Banter podcast. Stick around until after the news to hear more. This is Cup of Go for November 3rd, 2023. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in just 15 minutes per week. I'm Jonathan Hall. And I am not Shine Ahmad. I'm Josh Bleeker Schneider. Hi, Josh. Hello. How are you doing? I am doing fabulously. How are you? I'm great. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks for stepping in when Shai couldn't make it. My pleasure. I'm ready. I ate a bunch of coffee ice cream, so um, as close as I get to the. Awesome. Well, I have to start selling ice cream cones now with with our logo. As long as it's printed in um, in indelible sugar, I'm there. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about some news. Do you want to kick us off? Um, yes. Nobody should sleep between now and this coming Tuesday because there is a pre-release announcement for a security release for 121.4 and 120.11. We don't know what's in it. Nobody ever does. We'll find out on Tuesday. Two CVEs, that's all we know. So two things, two reasons not to sleep until Tuesday. Uh, Next week, we'll tell you why you already upgraded. Let's breeze through some conferences because it apparently is conference week and conference month. Just yesterday, GopherCon Ireland happened. Sorry you missed that one. Also yesterday and also today, GopherCon Singapore is happening. So if you're in that area, check it out. And uh, today, probably happening as you listen to this, FindConf is happening. Uh, You may recall we had Andy on the show a few weeks ago. He's one of the co-organizers of that one. So it's all about uh, desktop and graphical application development in Go. Next week is GopherCon AU, which I believe stands for gold. Yes. And then um, November 19th through 21st, there's GoLab in Italy. Also on November 19th, Gopher China is happening. And as far as I know, that rounds out the year for Gopher conferences, unless there are some that I haven't seen. So we probably won't be bothering you about conferences until next year. So let's talk about some proposals, because we've had a lot of proposal news in the last week or two, far more than we can talk about today. Uh, but there's one in particular that I think you are qualified to talk about more than most people. Do you want to tell us about that one? Yeah. Newly accepted, so should be coming soon um, in a release near you, is the intern slash unique package. Actually, just the unique package. Yeah. So why do you care about interning or why do you care about making things unique? Let's take strings as the canonical example. Suppose that you have a string containing the word hello, and you got it by converting from a byte slice containing the word hello. And you did that two times. You might end up with two copies in memory of the word hello. Um, You might plausibly want only one. For example, you might want it to save memory. Or importantly, you might want it to make comparisons really quick. For example, if you take two strings, both of which contain the word hello, the runtime might not know. They might be pointing to different parts of memory. So it might have to go and check. Are the H's the same? Are the E's the same? All the way through. And if you want guaranteed very fast O of 1 comparisons and the memory savings, you might want to convert your strings into unique strings. Um, And that's what the unique package gives you, is a way to take any value and convert it into a guaranteed only one O of 1 comparison version of itself. You don't want to overdo it. You probably know if you actually need it. um, But when you do need it, there is nothing like it. And I can tell a quick story about um, the origin story of this, if you're up for it. Yeah, before you do that, I have a quick question. So I just want to clarify, this This is a, a library, right? It's not some new feature in the compiler that's going to suddenly make our programs more memory efficient or whatever. Correct. You have to opt in. You have to actually use it, um, yeah. which is good. You wouldn't want the compiler to do this um, automatically. 
it would add a lot of overhead to every time you used a string. And oftentimes you want your strings to be separate um, entities. For example, you wouldn't want a tiny substring of a giant string to pin lots of um, memory that you weren't otherwise using. So yes, you have to actively go out and use it. Um, But it's funny that you mentioned that as a library, not a new compiler feature, because it uses some sort of verboten um, runtime goodies um, that are not accessible to the rest of the world. For any given package that's going to be in the standard library, there's always the question, why is it in the standard library? And one answer is because it needs magic and uh, the unique package requires some magic. So talk to us about the history and maybe the magic if that's topical enough. Absolutely. So um, at the time that this was created, I was working at TailScale and um, we had a problem, which was that IP addresses in Go were awful. They were byte slices, which means you couldn't use them as maps and keys. Um, They had tons of overhead. You had to constantly check and double check them. They were hard to compare. And uh, Brad Fitzpatrick at the time was like, you know what? This is really exasperating. We need to make our own IP address type that's good. And the goal was that it needed to be as small as the current um, net IP type and then try to get it upstreamed. So for IPv4, it's easy. It's just four bytes that small. For IPv6, it's a little bigger, but there's a real problem, which is that IPv6 have this awful thing called zones, which is an arbitrary string that you can associate with the rest of your IPv6 address. And the problem with zones was that they blew out the goal of making these things smaller than a byte slice. And so we, uh, Brad and Dave and I, worked on a way to intern these IPv6 zones. And this was critical for getting it small, but also we wanted to be able to use these things as map keys. And if you're going to use it as a map key, you need to guarantee that when you look it up by IPv6 address plus zone, you need to make sure that whatever you get back, there's only one of those particular zones. You wouldn't want to accidentally create two IPv6 addresses um, with the same zone string, but different instances of it, then lookups would fail. And there were many failed attempts to do this, um, and lots of back and forth and lots of crashing um, as we sort of figured out the runtime magic to make it work. And ultimately, the only way to do it was by making some pretty nasty assumptions about the way the current compiler runtime worked. And we made those assumptions anyway to keep them moving along. Then the IP address Uh, got upstreamed into the standard library. And then the Go team discovered they had accidentally um, sort of led in by a back door into the standard library thing that made lots of assumptions that it wasn't supposed to make about how everything worked. Um, And so then there was pressure to uh, make this official and um, put the magic in a place where it belonged. So it's not only a story about magic, it's like secret dark magic. Yeah. So in particular, it assumes that there's not a moving garbage collector. So it assumes that once you put something in one place in memory, the runtime doesn't move it to a different place in memory. And in theory, it could, as long as it changes all your pointers at the same time, what do you care? But, uh, and that has been something, it's been a, a feature to be able to someday have a moving garbage collector it has been carefully preserved over like 15 years of Go. Um, and this was one of the things that broke it. And they wanted to guarantee that they at least had the option in the future to do it. And so now, because this has been moved into the standard library, if there ever is a moving garbage collector at the same time they can fix up the unique package to do the right thing so this up to now this sounds really cool but it it sounds like just kind of nerding out can you give an example of where mere mortals might use this sort of package yeah absolutely well i don't know if mere mortals write diff tools often um, but (laughs) i have wanted this when i wrote a diff tool where you're doing lots and lots and lots of string comparisons and you want your string comparisons to be really cheap if you use a unique handle 
for every one of your strings, all of a sudden these comparisons are really cheap. Another example might be if you are doing lots of, uh, say, JSON decoding with lots of the same keys over and over again, you might want to say, look, I only want to keep one copy of each of these keys. Um, as I do this JSON decoding as a memory-saving optimization. Mm-hmm. And for folks who are familiar with uh, Ruby, Ruby has symbols for exactly this reason. For folks who are familiar with Erlang, they're a lot like, or not Erlang, um, Elixir. They're a lot like Elixir's atoms. So this shows up in a lot of different languages. That's a common need to be like, look, I really only want one of this string. Can I have only one of them? Cool. Yeah, I, I can imagine a few places where I might use that. I don't think it'll be a daily occurrence, but I... I... Imagine it will yeah. happen. You should know that you need it before you use it. You shouldn't be like, oh, that sounds cool. I heard about it on a podcast. I'm going to use it. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Don't use it until you need it. All right. Uh, let's move on. We spent a lot of time on that one, uh, but I think it was well-deserved. Um, there's another proposal that I think is interesting, maybe even controversial. Yeah, so this is a, an early proposal. It's, it's being discussed, but it's potentially controversial. So I think it's worth bringing up because maybe you, as a listener, have an opinion and you want to go weigh in on it. Uh, the proposal is to standardize the way the help behavior works in the various parts of the Go tool chain, the various co- Go command line tools we use. And it's the specific proposal is to have just sort of a standardized format uh, that if you display the help output because you typed the, a command wrong or you used an invalid flag or something like that, it would have a standard output format for every one of these tools because it kind of varies right now. It's interesting because the, the proposed format is fairly verbose. It basically, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but it kind of just spits out all the help options uh, or most of the help options all the time. And there's a counter proposal to kind of do the opposite. So already, just even in the issue tracker, we can see some contention going on here between these two competing proposals. I'm curious, Josh, which you think makes more sense or, or maybe some third option? It's a great question. I'm not sure that I have deep opinions. I, I will call out this comment by um, Nate Finch on the counter proposal um, f- that where he says, quote, I hate it when software says, yes, I know what you mean, but you didn't say it right. Here's how to say it right, rather than just doing what I ask. That was my favorite part of reading these proposals. The reason that this is important, in addition just to the developer experience of having a Go tool help that's useful, um, people look to the standard library and the tool chain to think how to structure their own help messages um, and their own code. So it's important to get this one right. I would love to see some alternative where I can get a tiny bit of output when I've just forgotten a tiny corner case um, and then have some way to get at the full verbose context when I need it. And I mean, maybe the internet is a good way to get the full verbose one and the local stuff should just be uh, should be reminders. I don't feel strongly. The main thing I like about the the proposal is the last two lines, which says see also and has a URL and or run go doc and it gives the full command to run to get the full go doc for the thing. That's really useful. Whether, whether spitting out all the potential flags you might want to use as a default is ideal, um, I don't know. Sometimes I want it, sometimes I don't. So I don't really, I don't have a strong opinion there either. But uh, I do like the idea, like you said, use the internet to solve this if you need to. Um, obviously, we should have the help be an interactive conversation with ChatGPT. There you go. Yeah. I thought you were going to say that you liked the last line of the proposal, which was let the bike shedding begin because, oh. boy, there'll be a lot of it. Um, but okay. <laughs> uh, this is an important topic and folks who feel strongly um, and have um, developer experience chops like or not, please come in and weigh in. Please, please do. All right. On to the next one. This is not a proposal. Uh, this is a blog post about uh, differential fuzzing and how it was used to find a security bug um, in the Go HTML parser, which Coincidentally, for my work, I was just using. So this is very topical for me. I think the exciting thing here is less the specific bug that got found. Um, 
than the introduction to the notion of differential fuzzing, um, mm -hmm. which is an incredibly powerful technique um, and a way to have sort of magic testing skills without writing very much code. Uh, so there are two core ideas in differential fuzzing. Uh, one is the differential part and one is the fuzzing part. So the fuzzing part is using a computer to generate lots of test cases for you. Um, you can do that in a black box kind of way, like with uh, Radamsa, R-A-D-A-M-S-A, or in a white box kind of way where it can see under the hood, like with uh, the Go test fuzz um, support that's built in or with uh, GoFuzz. Um, and I think we've talked about that in past podcast episodes. Uh, it's a great technique. The thing that takes it to the next level is the differential part. So the differential part says, hey, I'm going to take two different implementations that should reach the same output for the same input, two different ways of getting to the same goal. And then I'm going to feed them a bunch of inputs. And I'm going to see if they ever disagree. And if they ever disagree, I've found a bug. And you don't even need to write any code to define what is right, what is wrong. You don't have to write test cases. You don't have to imagine test cases. All you have to do is have two different ways to get the same thing and then find out if they ever disagree. And I can tell you from experience that this is a phenomenal way to find loads of important bugs extremely quickly with minimal effort. Awesome. I'm thinking like, if I had two implementations, well, why did I write the second one? Performance. Okay. Or because you're, say, implementing the compressed gzip package, and one implementation is gzip, and um, that's written in C by somebody else, and one implementation is in Go. Or because you wrote uh, a very, very simple version that was really dead obvious, but not performant in a way that you needed. Or maybe you have multiple implementations um, because you're writing something to a spec, like an RFC. Or, and this is the horrifying case for security, you might have multiple implementations um, because you're writing, say, in different languages in different parts of your stack. And this is where you can get really nasty security mm -hmm. bugs. If you have one XML parser at one layer um, validating and it has a different opinion of what is valid XML from an XML parser in a different language or a different library, um, at a different layer, you can sneak all sorts of horrible things by. And this, in fact, another nice thing about this blog post is one of its core lessons um, is to make sure that any time that you are parsing something, you make sure that whatever parsed it reserializes before you send it back on the wire. And that's a good way to guard against these kind of nasty bugs. So one, you can find the nasty security bugs with differential fuzzing, but then two, even if you aren't going to do that, Anytime you parse something, um, reserialize it rather than just parsing it, saying it's good, and then passing it along unchanged. Awesome. Oh, by the way, I don't know if we call out other podcasts ever, um, but this is a great moment to mention another of uh, my favorite uh, podcasts um, called Security Cryptography Whatever. Um, and for folks who are interested, it is a low production value, a lot of inside baseball around security and cryptography, which goes over my head. But if you sort of listen between the lines, you can learn quite a lot about how to write good secure code. Um, and they have awesome. some fairly entertaining episodes, like an interview with the guy who designed the cryptography for Blu-ray discs. And he describes how part of it was like doing crypto for Blu-ray. And the other part of it was like spy versus spy, um, tracking the movements of the main hackers who broke um, the Blu-ray cryptography and knowing like when they were going on vacation so they could go on vacation at the same time. Pretty fun. <laughs> we'll have a link to that in the show notes, too. A couple more proposals back on that topic before we close out the show. There's one that I think is interesting from a performance standpoint. I don't think this is one that's going to directly affect most of our listeners, uh, except when their programs start working faster. Uh, and that is a proposal to uh, modify the bytes.reader type to have some new methods to make uh, zero copy reads and writes, uh, or, or reads, I guess, possible. Yeah, so why would you ever care about this? Um, suppose you wrote some code that takes in an I.O. reader. It's very common, some parser or something like that. And when that I.O. reader runs, you're going to have to pass it a 
byte slice that it's going to fill with a bunch of bytes and then you're going to process them and you're going to do it again and do it again. But if you have a byte slice already, that is your IO reader is just wrapping around a byte slice, it feels silly to make a bunch of copies of this at every moment in order to process them. You really kind of want to just be like, look, can't I just have that byte slice over there? And you don't want to be like, hey, is this a bytes.reader and poke under the hood there? What you really want is some generic way to be like, hey, if you can just give me a byte slice without having to do any work instead of making a copy, will you do that, please? Um, and the core idea here is to start to standardize that communication. How do I say, yes, I can just give you a byte slice. That's cheap. Yeah. If you're interested in, in the details, of course, read the proposal. It's fairly short and the discussion isn't that long. So I, I think it's really easy to digest. I'm in favor of the proposal. I hope it's uh, accepted. I think it's in the uh, likely accept stage or is it still just a discussion? I think it's still just a discussion. Just I, it's, discussion. There's actually quite a lot of ways to approach this problem. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to see Joe, who's a previous guest on the podcast there, because um, he often has really great insights about um, API design. So, yep. But there's definitely a lot of room here for people to share their experiences with um, Bytes.reader and how they currently approach the problem. That will inform how the conversation goes on. Definitely. And one more. I'll let you take this one. All right. So there are proposals two, that are actually, I guess. relatively advanced. They're kind of a pair, um, and they're both around benchmarking. So when you've written your Go tests and then you write your Go benchmark, you probably know that when you run a benchmark, you iterate from zero to b.n, and then you do whatever work you need to do. And the benchmarking framework will take care of adjusting b.n in order to get a good number of iterations to get good output and everything from there. There are a few problems in Paradise. Um, one problem is it's very tempting to write a benchmark function where the work you do is like execute, you know, calculate Fibonacci of 20. But the compiler can be very clever and it can be like, oh, you don't ever use the result of the 20th Fibonacci number, I'm just going to throw it away and skip myself a bunch of computation. Or it could say, oh, you're putting in 20. Well, if you're using 20 in particular, I can do some clever optimizations. Neither of these is going to serve you well in a benchmark. You don't want to know in particular that 20 is special and that you're going to throw away the result. You want to know, hey, what happens if I actually do the calculation as if it were an arbitrary integer? Currently, there is no good way to tell the compiler to keep its paws off and not to try to optimize too hard the new function testing.keep is going to provide that. You can now say testing.keep of Fibonacci of 20, and it will not throw away the result of the Fibonacci calculation. And if you do testing.keep of Fibonacci of testing.keep of 20, it'll tell the compiler, by the way, 20 is supposed to be opaque. You can't use any information about it. So it's going to be a little bit of magic. Um, the magic is really simple. It's just going to be a function implemented in assembly that does nothing, um, but the compiler can't see through assembly. So it's going to prevent the compiler from doing anything clever. And it's paired with testing.b.loop. So instead of iterating from zero to b.n, the new way is going to be, assuming this is accepted, to have a for loop calling b.loop over and over and over again until it returns false. And this gets you a lot of nice things. For one, it prevents people from abusing b.n and making weird benchmarks or just forgetting b.n. This all stemmed from a, a vet check I proposed years ago to look for places where people would forget to use to loop in benchmarks. And everyone was like, nah, that doesn't possibly happen. It turns out when you go and look, people forget it all the time. And so b.loop helps with that. And it also lets you do better statistical analysis by doing many smaller runs instead of one big run. And the key piece is it puts it back in the control of the um, benchmarking framework to do more and better things. So if you have benchmarks, particularly if you care about your benchmarks being accurate for making good business decisions, testing.keep and testing.b.loop will probably be very helpful and they'll probably land within the next cycle or two, I hope. Now, I'm going to 
step out beyond my expertise and, and make a claim, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, um, you still need to be careful when designing your benchmarks because you can still have CPU optimizations, you know, at the hardware level, or I can't even remember the names of these things, but, you know, prediction, uh, CPU predictions and... Branch prediction. Branch yeah. prediction, yes, that's the word I was looking for, or CPU caching that could still potentially render your benchmarks less than accurate. This helps, obviously, but it's not going to just magically make all benchmarks magically valid. That is absolutely true. Yeah, you can do things that will make your micro benchmark go blazing fast, um, look up tables, lots of branches, and then throw it into a bigger program and discover that your entire program gets slower because you're consuming lots of a contended resource like the um, the L1 cache or your branch lookup. So you definitely have to be careful with uh, micro benchmarks. If you are going to write them, you want to use these tools but the best benchmark possible profiles taken in production on the hardware that you care about and then optimizing and keeping your sort of optimize iterate loop pretty tight. Good advice. We're running a little bit over, but I think it's worth it. Uh, we have just two more things here coming from the community. Uh, there's a, a conversation we saw on Reddit that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, I, don't, I don't do Reddit very often, but this one stood out at me. The question, in a nutshell, is, is there actually such a thing as idiomatic Go? We hear about it a lot in the community. We hear about it probably on this show. If you're reading documentation or books about Go, you hear, here's the Go way to do things, the idiomatic way. But if you look at a lot of the big projects, like Kubernetes is called out, uh, probably the largest Go project in the world, it's very non-idiomatic. And even parts of the standard library don't look idiomatic anymore. What do you think? Is there such a thing as idiomatic Go in a real project? Yes. The end. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, a lot, of, a lot of um, a lot of large projects are not idiomatic. Often, they were created by somebody who was learning Go for the first time as they did it, and then took on their own life. Or, as in the case of the standard library, they've been under serious performance pressure and have ended up um, sort of had a lot of their idioms being optimized away. But there are there is beautiful idiomatic Go code um, that is worth reading and uh, and learning from, and there are some called out in that Reddit thread. Although entertainingly, like half of them are written by by Brad. Yeah, I, I think I probably agree. Uh, but I, I would I would add one little thing, and that is that. Even in spoken language, you know, if we're talking about English, like does does proper English exist? It's more a concept. I mean, proper English doesn't exist, but proper proper French definitely does. Well, for certain languages, there's a there's an official defined uh, version, right? The same as Spanish. However, does anybody actually speak that language? And I kind of doubt. So it. I guess my, my my point with French is less about it being defined and more about how picky people are and uptight they are. Like one of the yeah. frustrating things for a foreign language. Uh, learner of English is that if you say anything in English that an English speaker understands, they'll just be like, uh-huh, and keep going. Whereas uh, someone who speaks French will typically correct you over yeah, and over. Okay. Um, and right. so the interesting question to my mind is more about like, where is Go on that? Like if you show somebody a Go project and it's not idiomatic, are they like, oh, or they're like, oh, hey, that works. That's great. Um, and, and that's an interesting thing to debate. Let us know what you think. Uh, join us on the, the Slack channel. What do you think about Idiomatic Go? Is it, a, is it a something we should strive for? Have you seen it? I'd love to hear uh, a discussion about this. One last item here. Uh, Josh, would you tell us, you showed me a brief demo of something called PEX. It looks pretty cool, but tell us what it is. Um, so this is something I, I cobbled together for fun um, recently. I often do sort of ad hoc data analysis using um, the like shell pipeline, which is pretty common, right? You have some log file and you pipe it through JQ and then you pipe it through grep and then you um, sort of 
you know, pipe it through sort. And I noticed that my workflow for that was really inefficient. Like I would, you know, pipe it through these things, then pipe it through head, look at the result, and then hit up, edit it, do it again, hit up, edit it, do it again. Um, and I thought, you know what I really want? I really want to just see it as I go. And so I built a little tool called PEX. It's a little terminal, terminal UI program. And it is straight up shell with um, regular shell syntax. Um, I use an awesome shell parser by Daniel Marti. I take every part of the shell pipeline and have its output as a column visible as you go. Um, so you can see live updating with every keystroke exactly what your data looks like as you do your analysis. Um, and it's still a very much a like toy project. Um, but if people really like it, I'll invest some more in making it, uh, making it nice. Cool. And you can find it at, uh, well, we'll put, we'll put the link in the show notes. We'll put the link in the show notes. What does PEX mean? Uh, so when you are piping a house, you can put in copper pipes or you can put in plastic pipes and plastic pipes are called PEX. Okay. P-E-X, not P-E-C-K-S for anybody. Correct. P-E-X. Um, it's, it's, I think it might even be a brand name. Hopefully they don't sue me. Um, but <laughs> it's for making, it's making piping easier. Turns All out right. it's also the name of like Python executable. Uh, oops. Oh, oh well, oops. naming is hard. Oh, well. Nobody here uses Python, so it'll never be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh, thanks for joining me uh, this week. If you're listening still for this long episode, thank you. Stick around. We do have an interview today I recorded earlier uh, in the week with the maintainer, the, the core maintainer of the Go test containers package. So stick around to hear about that from Manuel de la Peña. Brilliant. Always a pleasure, Jonathan. All right. See you later. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our rather long news episode today. It was a real pleasure to have Josh here. He's already dropped off. Uh, he's so knowledgeable. I just really wanted to take advantage and let him expand on some of these news art items that uh, I don't necessarily have the background to, to extend on. So I hope you found it interesting too and were able to stick around for the whole thing. As I mentioned at the top of the program, this episode is sponsored by the Backend Banter Podcast. If you are a backend developer and which Go developer isn't really, you'll probably find this podcast to be valuable as well. Check out the Back in Patrick podcast. It's hosted by Lane Wagner, who's been a guest on this show in the past. And he's also the founder of Boot.dev, which is a gamified uh, learning platform that teaches you how to do backend development, uh, specifically in Go and some Python and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So if you're new to that, check out Boot.dev as well. We'll have links to both of those, of course, in the show notes. And as we mentioned during the show, uh, we'd love to have you join us on our Slack channel. Uh, we Our official uh, podcast Slack channel is cup-o-go on the Gopher Slack. Link to that in the show notes if you are not already on the Gopher Slack. It's a great place, not just for our podcast, but for all sorts of Go chat. Come join the Gopher Slack uh, and come have a conversation with us about uh, anything on the show. Uh, which help format do you like? What uh, byte optimizations can you think of? Whatever. Come join us. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with a friend, with a colleague, uh, with your pets. Leave a review on iTunes or does iTunes exist anymore? Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called. Wherever you listen, leave a review, leave a rating, and share. And finally, if you have some news you'd like to share with us, uh, reach out. Uh, you can reach us by email at news at cupago.dev or head over to cupago.dev on the web and you can find um, some pictures of us there, all of our back episodes, and even a little shopping link. You can buy a mug or a little bit of other merch we have with our cute Brewster mascot. Once again, thanks for listening and stick around for the interview with Manuel de la Peña about Go test containers. Hola, Manuel. ¿Cómo estás? Very good. Very good. Thank Wonderful. You. Thank you for joining me. I'm glad to have you here. We are joined today with by Manuel de la Peña. 
calling in from Spain. What part of Spain are you in? I live in Toledo. Toledo. Toledo is 70 kilometers south of Madrid. Wonderful. So in the center of Spain. And you are involved in the Test Containers Project, which I can see on your T-shirt. Our, our audience can't see that, uh, but it's a nice T-shirt. Would you get, do a brief introduction? Tell us about who you are and what you do with, with Test Containers. Well, I'm the core maintainer of Test Containers Go. You know that Test Containers is a set of libraries in multiple programming languages. Yes. The more famous or the the older one or the, the one that came first was the Java flavor mm -hmm. of Test Containers. Mm -hmm. And from that, uh, languages many different well, implementations appear in different languages, Python, Rust, Go. And I started contributing to it because in my, my previous job, we needed it. Mm -hmm. And I started contributing a feature uh, in Test Containers Go. And since then, I, get, I got more, more involved in the community, trying the repo, asking questions, resolving doubts in, in GitHub. And well, at some point in 2020, uh, the original maintainer suggests me to, to join as a, as a maintainer. Okay. And since then, I'm, I'm maintaining the, the library. Very cool. Test Containers is a project I have been using for several years, and I, I keep hearing new people talk about it. I'm a member of the Amsterdam Go Meetup, and just last month, uh, we had a presentation about using test containers. So it, it seems to be popping up everywhere. Wow. I'm curious, um, maybe for those who aren't familiar with what test containers is, would you describe just briefly what it does? I mean, it, it's kind of in the name, but I think it needs some explanation. Explain what test containers does and who might use it and why. Well, at the end, uh, every application needs to um, consume dependencies. Like when you are running your tests or you are in your production environment, you, you consume or you inter interact with a third-party service or a dependency like a database, a queue, or a cache, for example. So when you want to, to shift left and try to push the dependencies to your local development while you are working in the application, building it, you probably don't want to, to mock that dependency. So with new modern tools like Docker, well, Docker is not modern at all, but with this kind of tooling, you are able to wrap the dependency into a Docker container and spin up in a very convenient way for testing, for example, or for developing the application while you are in local mode or development mode. So Docker exposes, well, Docker is a Go project and exposes all the APIs through a, a Go library. And Test Containers is a wrapper on top of Docker. So it comes with convenient APIs to interact and, and handle the lifecycle of those containers with a developer-friendly API to, well, start container, create container, define how do you create the container, wait for the container, copy files, extract files from the container. So I think it comes with a programmatic API, a uh, very granular, so you can go low level mm -hmm. and, well, create your own, for example, conditions to start a container or, or waiting, for example, for a log, waiting for a, a port to be available. So, yes, uh, as a sum up, I would say that it's a, a library on top of Docker mm -hmm. that comes with these handy APIs or handy APIs to, to manage this lifecycle. Really cool. And how much time do you spend on this? I mean, this isn't your main job, I, I believe. Yes, yes, yes. Atomic Jar is the company uh, that was uh, founded two or three years ago, mm -hmm. I guess. And I joined last year. Okay. So I've been here since August 22. Atomic Jar is sponsoring the development of certain libraries. Is Test Containers is, an, is fully open source, mm -hmm. the license MIT. They are hiring the maintainers of the of the main main languages like Java at the moment, Node.js, and Go. Okay. The other ones are community driven. Okay. We are also community driven, but we have like this vote of quality or well, we are fully working on that. So for me, it's, it's my main job to maintain the library. It is your full time job. That's really awesome. And so. Talk to me a little bit. I'm curious just to hear, like, what are you working on 
uh, with test containers now. I mean, I, I follow the repo, and so I see when a new release came out, I think a week ago, 0.26 was it? Um, mm-hmm. And they come out every few weeks or so, I see something new happen. Uh, but what are you working on, say, right now, this this week? Yes, one of the, the ways that we are following while developing is adding modules, mm-hmm. uh, which is, well, in, in test containers, you have the generic container abstraction with, where you can just put any Docker image into it, and well, you, you cook it by yourself. So we are adding the concept of modules that if you want a Redis instance, a Postgres instance, a Kafka, Redpan, etc., you don't have to do it by yourself. It comes with the defaults already set up for you with some flavor that you can configure with functional options. And with that in mind, you just run the container for Redis. It's a, it's a good module. Mm-hmm. So you just import the module for the Redis uh, test container and you have it. You have it in your test with just one liner, basically. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, I can show you the links, but in, in testcontainer.com, there is a dedicated page for the modules. You can filter by Go projects, mm-hmm. go, go, go language, sorry, and you will see that, well, many of the most important technologies are right there queues, databases, uh, Kubernetes like K3S, uh, K6 for testing. So it's, we, we are adding more and more. If anybody listening has, has used test containers in, say, Java or one of the other languages, how does the Go version compare? Is it pretty feature compatible or are there major differences between them? Yes, yes this is a good point. The Java one is the most um, mature mm-hmm. of the languages because it comes with more expertise. The founders of the company created the, the library. Mm-hmm. It was 2017 or 16. I don't remember the exact date. Okay. And test container Go came two years later and it was a community effort. So it came with, le- it's, at the moment, it's not feature paired, mm-hmm. but it's getting, getting more, the most important things are there. In theory, the, or the goal as a, as a Tommy Char employees, also not only the maintainers, but an employee is to align all the languages mm-hmm. as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So any, anything working in multiple languages or moving from a team to the other or a company to the other, the same expectations you had in, in one language uh, will be there. For, for the, the other language, for example. Right. <clears throat> so basically, this is a random number, but 80% of the, of the, fun- the features are there. Mm-hmm. And probably with some slightly different because every language has some idioms. Of course. But at the end of the day, you can well, fully, fully work with it in, in all of them. Really cool. Are you working on this primarily alone or do you have a team working on the Go uh, version of test containers with you? In Go specifically, we have only one maintainer, which is me, mm-hmm. uh, which sometimes it feels complicated when you have to send a pull request, review it, and merge by yourself. <laughs> so you feel sometimes as a solo developer, but at the end of the day, the community is growing. Mm-hmm. And I usually ping some developers in the community that, for example, contribute to something different or something related, mm-hmm. and they come with their feedback. So okay. you said at the beginning of, the, of this conversation that it's getting more attraction. Mm-hmm. And I feel it in the in the reviews, in the pull requests and the issue. We usually keep some metrics uh, month by month using uh, an open source library, an open source system, which is mm-hmm. Cauldron. And we get more onboardings. Users that are committing or opening issues uh, month by month. And this is important to be an open source project, a healthy open source project. Um, so this loneliness that sometimes I feel gets gets fixed with these community members. Are there alternatives to test containers? 
obviously you could sort of do your own. I mean, you could you could write a, a bash script to bring up your yes. do- Docker containers or whatever. Are there other libraries that take a similar approach? And, and if so, how does test containers compare to them? You mean in Go or in it, other languages? Well, specifically, but but maybe broadly speaking, in anything. Yeah, you said it correctly. You you can write raw Docker commands mm-hmm. in a shell script or direct call it from your code. Uh, but at the end of the day, you have to well probably know Docker. Uh, nowadays, if you don't know Docker, probably you are very outdated, uh, or you are coming as a newbie to the to yeah. this industry. But yes, there are alternatives. In Go specifically, Docker test is very popular. Mm-hmm. If you to look at the GitHub stars, for example, they have more stars than us. And I think it's a great project, to be honest. Uh, the thing is that as a test containers library, we try to follow the paradigms and the, we try to align with the, the Java implementation. They, they follow the other different approach. It's popular. Mm-hmm. So I would say that for uh, the moment, Docker test is, I have heard about in different conferences also. Uh, so I think they are doing a good job with well, wrapping the Docker engine. Nice, nice. So let's talk about the most recent release, um, which was, I believe, zero point twenty six. Is that right? Yes. Uh, what What's new in that release that that uh, that's worth talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, it came with two modules. Uh, one is the Cassandra module, so you're working with Cassandra database. You will be able to just, as I explained before, with one liner import the Cassandra module and run the container for Cassandra. And other module that I'm really proud of, and it was contributed by the community, is the K6 module. K6 is a, is a project for, for performance testing. And well, it comes with other testing capabilities. It's, for, it's a Grafana project, and the Grafana folks doing the K6 module, they, doing the K6 project, contributed the K6 module to us. So it's really important because this demonstrates that open source communities can collaborate uh, across different projects. And I'm really happy about this one. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the time to to thank Pablo specifically with Pablo Chassin who contributed it. Uh, so I'm really happy that this module came because at the end it will come with many. Well, it will open the gate to many opportunities to testing cloud native applications because if you combine this K6 module with, for example, K3S module where you check uh, a Kubernetes uh, in Docker application, you will be able to well, basically combine them and, and start testing your application in a very consistent manner or more developer-friendly. You don't have to, to have a, a shared environment for you on Kubernetes, or you have to maintain or deploy your, your Kubernetes locally or in a remote cluster. So it will it will bring us uh, with this easy, really easy cool. mm-hmm, I capabilities. It. I have an idea now for a module I might have to contribute, um, uh, unless sure. it's already there. Uh, the CouchDB is uh, something I program a lot against. Oh, I think we have it. Really? That would be amazing. Let me check, but Couch, no, Couch Base, we have Couch Base. Couch Base, okay. Speaking of contributing, is there anything that you're looking for, contributions you're you're hoping for from the community, or if if somebody's listening and they're excited about this and they want to contribute, what can they do? Well, there is is a label in in the GitHub repository with uh, Hacktoberfest. You know that we're Mm -hmm. in Hacktoberfest. Uh, also, improving the documentation uh, is important for us. We try to take care of it. We have a kind of duplication because, you know, in Go, we have the pkg.go.dev mm-hmm. service with automatically discover documentation, example, runnable examples. So tr- we're trying to be more idiomatic in that sense, trying to add testable examples to, to the modules on, on the code to, to have the examples that you can copy and paste directly from the, the official documentation from Go, but at the same time we manage our own website with docs, we, we, where we can be more verbose mm-hmm. or 
explain it in a different manner, which is not just comments. Yeah. Fixing this documentation or improving this documentation is always welcome. And we're, for this October Fest, we have received a few, uh, received a few uh, documentation contributions. Yes. Really cool. Also modules. Yeah. If, if you want to see the technology that you use in your projects, uh, as you said, CouchDB or any other, uh, we have an open issue with a list of modules that could be of interest, but we are open to any. The latest one that is is going to come, hopefully, is my, um, Microsoft SQL Server. Okay. Yes, because one, one user was requesting it and he suggested, hey, I can contribute it. So at some point it will come a pull request with the, with that one. Yes, we usually check what the Java implementation or the, no, the .NET implementation is also very, very, very important in terms of features and, or modules. So you can take a look how it's implemented in other languages and just port those languages to Go. Mm -hmm. And this is how we usually do with modules that already exist. But sometimes modules that doesn't exist in other languages, we come with all the idioms that in, in Go or the specific to a technology. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's any new module is, is important for us. Awesome. One, one last technical question, I think. I probably should have asked this earlier on, but... Um a question I hear a lot when I'm talking about test containers or I hear others talking about it is, will it work in my continuous integration server? Because uh, they don't want to have to configure test containers for your local development and then configure something else for Jenkins or for GitHub Actions or whatever. How does that work? Well, it depends on how the, the CI is configured. Because, for example, one, one question that I have received a few times in, in the offer Slack channel, mm -hmm. Slack workspace, is regarding Docker workers. So in the, in the sense of Jenkins or GitLab CI uses Docker, you need to configure Docker in Docker to achieve that. So this is one of the most frequent questions regarding this configuration. Uh, in GitHub Actions, it works basically out of the box. Yeah. Uh, we have some docs that could be improved. It's something that we will need uh, help there. But it's we have docs to configure Docker in Docker. At the end, you have to configure something in the, in the worker, the runner executor, just mounting a volume for the the Docker socket, and well, yes, is there? Yes. Yes, probably you have to change our environment variable to to replace the Docker host, test container socket over Docker override. Sure. So there is some some tricks or workarounds to make it work, but. I understand that it's, it's difficult. I had this conversation yesterday with one of the gophers in the channel and he said, it's not a problem in the library because the project itself needs these, these privileges, mm -hmm. accessing the Docker to create Dockers. Right. It's sometimes there are policies in, that, in your CI that you cannot do that. Yeah. Now, for example, we use GitHub Actions to test the library and well, it works natively, even with rootless Docker or yes. That's been my experience too on both GitHub Actions and GitLab CI. That it, it for the default configuration, it seems to just work pretty much out of the box. Mm -hmm. Maybe a small tweak, uh, but if you're running self-hosted runners or some some custom configuration, your mileage may vary. I think two re two releases ago, we we did a, a great effort trying to be to to create a different strategies to discover the Docker host depending on your Windows, mm -hmm. Linux, mm -hmm. etc. You are running on Windows. Uh, try to detect the Docker socket or the Docker host, uh, well, in a very consistent manner. Uh, before that, it was very ad hoc, mm -hmm. depending on the way the code was spread out, out, across different place, places. But now it's, it's centralized in one place. Okay. And I think I'm really happy how it, it worked. Um, and, well, it's, it's important to discover the Docker host depending on where you are running. Yeah, very cool. 
Uh, is there anything else I should ask you about that I that I haven't? Anything important to discuss that, that hasn't come up yet? Yes, it's related to one, your question about what I've been working on. Uh, one of the latest things is creating a workshop. So, for example, if, if you are trying to learn test containers uh, by yourself, we, we, we don't offer training courses, something that is there in the Word documentation, but we have created a, a workshop. We have a very deep uh, one for Java, so we have recently ported it to Go, and it uses Redis, Red Panda, and Postgres to inter interact with a microservice architect with HTTP handlers, um, and also uses local stack uh, to simulate the interaction with a cloud lambda. So it's, it's, it's great that we have this workshop because one, it will allow us to present it in conferences in, uh, if we want to create a hands-on experience of the library. And also it, if you want to have a self-paced experience with the library, uh, you can go to the GitHub repository for the workshop test containers slash workshop dash, dash go. And you will have this workshop and we'll try to follow it on, on your own. So I'm really happy that this is there finally, yeah, awesome. because it will allow people to, to discover with a hands-on experience. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Well, um, as I mentioned before the recording, uh, we have two questions I, I always like to ask uh, my guests. So the first one is, imagine somebody has they're tied you down and they said, Manuel, you have to remove some feature from Go or we're not going to let you free. What, what would you take away from Go, the standard library, the language itself, anything like that? I don't know if, if the language, because I love the simplicity of the language. Uh, well, sometimes it can be complex for when you have to deal with concurrent channels etc. But, well, it's a different mindset. But I would like to, to talk about the, the mindset of gophers. For example, we don't accept very, very, or we usually accept, don't accept adding a, a library, mm -hmm. a dependency. So I think it's part of the mindset of the, the simplicity of the language, like this, a little copy is a better than a little dependency, mm -hmm. this proverb. But sometimes the benefits of using a, a library could be important. Well, our audience could say, oh, you're maintaining a library. Of course, you want people to, to use your library. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But at the same time, I have seen it in different projects that there are policies to not add libraries. Uh -huh. And well, probably it's kind of being more open-minded and not be, no, no, let's do this, the go thing, the go way, because at the end we are reinventing the wheel many things, many times. I understand it and I like this support copying just what you need. But mm -hmm. sometimes thinking about the benefits. It's also important. Fair criticism. I agree. And now the other side of that. Suppose somebody hands you a magic wand and says, Manuel, you can weigh this wand and add anything you want to go. What would you add? Well, the team added generics in 118, which was, I, I came from Java and I like it generic. To be honest, I'm not using it at all. Okay. <laughs> With the plain Go interface is enough for me at the moment. I haven't seen the need of using generics. Yes, but let me let me think about <laughs> about it because of course the language is not perfect. M many people complain about the having to explicitly type if error equals nil this this thing from nil, and when you get used to it, I like it. Probably some sugar on it would be interesting. Uh, so I will try to add some sugar on it. Although okay. I, I like to be explicit because it it make you focus on the errors. I agree. And I, and I like this, to be honest. So I, I don't want to remove that. Okay. I will try to adjust a, a few sugar on it. Yeah, my, my biggest complaint about that, which it's maybe is some room for sugar. I, I don't know the solution, but I, rarely, rather than doing if error does not equal nil, I want to do if error equals nil, 
And I wish it was more visually distinct that not that exclamation equals from the equals equals. Because sometimes I get it wrong and I don't see it immediately. So that that's the one complaint I have about that idiom in Go. I don't know what sugar would solve that problem. But that's one thing that uh, if somebody has a brilliant sugar solution to that one, I would love it. For me, the sugar is copilot. Yeah. Because yeah, the moment you are writing that and you click enter, it suggests, it suggests you the if error equals nil, so you, have, yep. you don't have to type it. Yeah, cool. Well, Manuel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've, as I said, been using test containers for several years, and I continue to use it on a daily basis. So thank you for the contribution you've made. Uh, hopefully others listening today will maybe have heard of it for the first time and give it a shot and and improve their, their workflows. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan, for inviting me. It was a pleasure to to share here uh, with the community uh, the library and also our experience about improving the developer experience yep. while working with applications with our software. Wonderful. Talk to you later. Okay, see you.